And the spirit of Amalek continues to this day. So that's uh, in two weeks. And uh, right after we remember not to forget to remember to forget and wipe out the name of Amalek, then, uh, then of course we have the holiday of Purim. Purim, right? And, uh, Partly about wiping out Amalek. Which is all about that, exactly right. So uh, traditionally we would uh, dress up because things in Purim are not as they seem. And I think over the many, many years that the uh, Spurlock family has uh, been gracious enough to host us, uh, we have all learned together a lot about Purim and uh, Mordecai and Yay. the Whatever evil. Amen. The one thing we learned was how to say it, how not to say it. <laughs> and that was, as we're all learning together, we might want to learn that or see if this is accurate. I probably know. You have that mic on. No, no, no. I have no uh, mic on. This was really embarrassing. Well, what, what did you say? My husband said it wasn't me. What? <laughs> 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 he said it so <laughs> It was a Jewish gown. I said... Uh, Purim? No. Yeah, he I said, said it at a porn party. She, she was like, a what? <laughs> She misunderstood. I'm shocked. I how should we be saying it? Lynn and Cindy Cry said, You could probably say Poreen. I said, I say Poreen. Because then I did it. I said it to somebody and they looked at me and as soon as they did that, I remembered it and said, I said Purim to a conservative Jew that I worked with, and he looked at me and he goes, Purim? You mean Purim? I said, yeah, Purim. It gets complicated. You went this country. That's right. We're having a costume party. (laughs) We're going to get together and read the whole Megillah. That is what we do. We're going to get together and we're going to read the whole Megillah. Bam. As we learn along the way, that's a great deal too. So that's Purim. And that's in the first week of March. Then, as March progresses, we have two more special Shabbats. The first one is Shabbat Parah, which is cow. And this reminds us that you are not able, when the temple is standing, to enter into God's presence if you have been defiled by being in the presence of a dead body. Or many other things that cause that same type of uncleanness. This is not dirtiness, this is uncleanness. And that, in fact, is unrepairable at this time. Or actually irreparable at this time. Without the temple, it doesn't matter if you've got a red cow and you manage to get a pure Cohen, who can burn it, who then becomes impure. Yeah, we can't go through that, but in the days when the temple was standing, this was a helpful reminder that you needed to go through that ritual in order to eat the Passover. And then finally, uh, what month is does Passover lie? Nisan, right? Which will be the first of months for you in the springtime. And that is what will begin in the middle of March, So right at the end of March, beginning of April, you'll be in the middle of Nisan. And when is the Passover? 
14th. It's the 14th. It's between the twilights, the 14th to the 15th, okay? <coughs> so it was on the very day, the very full moon, the 15th of Nisan, that our people left the land of Israel. So that's what's coming up. Two, uh, three more special Shabbats, and uh, several of them will be while we're together. So that's encouraging and exciting. Um, the uh, other thing is that if you were here for the... Um, how many of you like the chairs like this rather than the other way? How many like it this way? Two people. Nine people. How many liked it the other way? More like a church. <laughs> Sorry. More like a synagogue. More like a synagogue, yeah. Yeah, so... Okay. Sort of brand... Mileage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Um, whether you liked doing the whole Shacharit service in Hebrew or not, whether you liked doing the whole thing in, in Hebrew or not, how many of you thought it was cool to finally hear it all it in was Hebrew? Good. Wasn't that cool? Okay, I like good, the good. Some English with, with Hebrew too. Yeah, I like a good mix. I do like a good mix. So. It is. It's helpful. But, you know, it's good to hear that. So, uh, so that's the deal there. All right, I'm going to open the front door and get a little bit of uh, cool air in here. For those of you, if you if you call, we're, we're mixing things up and trying some new things to see. Um, so there's going to be a, a discussion on Ein Yaakov, uh, which is a large book, and uh, Taylor's going to do that. So can you can you hold up said uh, tome? I need to explain who it is. Pregnant woman holding up the book. <laughs> so uh, so Taylor, give us uh, give us a few minutes and, and tell us. Why would I want to study this book, and who wrote it, and what's it all about? Ein Yaakov is uh, translated as the well of Yaakov, the wellspring of Yaakov. Um, it's basically uh, it's all of the stories in the Talmud that are classified under Agadah. What is that? Well, in the Talmud, there's two categories. There's halakha, which is all the legal proceedings. Do this, don't do that. Why do we do this? Well, so-and-so disagrees with this. Blah, blah, blah. Very much uh, legal proceedings. Uh, but sprinkled within every single page of the Talmud are stories, parables, ethical sayings, mystical encounters, etc., that you cannot classify as legal because it's not something that you read and then say, okay, now I've got to go and do this. It's not meant for you to then go and practice. It's meant to encourage your fear of Hashem um, and, and accepting the ethical things. Those, of course, you ought to be putting into your life. And so this uh, Enyakov um, is, I can't remember who originally did it. It's published. Yeah, but somebody went through the entire Talmud and got every single story, ethical saying, um, parable, and put it into a single volume. So essentially the reason it's so big is because it goes through the entirety of the 72 volumes, as we know now, uh, of the Talmud and picks out all of those portions which um, are not necessarily legal, but more so for encouragement. Is it specifically just Talmud Babli, or is it also Yerushalmi? It's Bavli, from what I understand, but a lot of the stories would carry over, but there would be a very small percentage that would be in the Yerushalayimi um, that are not in Bavli. Um, the Talmud basically developed in two major places. The major one that we know of today developed in Babylon, as well as scholars were. The smaller version developed in Jerusalem it is very much shorter. Um, it got cut off early because of the... Uh, very dangerous situation of the Romans and, and, and Jerusalem, so that's not the main one. You think it was the Talmud. So this would be 
to really encourage how you view Hashem, how you view your walk with Him, understanding different stories that have been passed down through the ages. That's the basic so, gist of this. So the idea of, I mean, we're all enthralled, I think, when some of the, some of the guys or gals here will bring up a story from the Talmud that says, well, so-and-so was praying, and the sage is so, and you're not supposed to do it that way. And he said, yeah, I'm supposed to do it this way. No, no, you're not supposed to do it that way. In fact, if you're supposed to do it that way, then may God make the walls fall, you know, that kind of thing. And the walls do fall down, and then he prays, and the walls stand back up again, and stuff like that. Those are stories. And, and that's exactly what Haggadah means. We use the Haggadah on Pesach to tell the story. That's what it is, it's to tell. So it's just telling the stories. If you want to get a good sense for where the sages are coming and the mindset that they had and perhaps you should have, that's a great review, and I can't wait to buy my copy. I know one of my daughters bought the A Macro. Two daughters bought it? Well, we bought it, but I have possession of it. Morty keeps it at her house. Oh, oh, yeah. oh I didn't mean to. I have more bookshelf space. Ah, well, there it is. So, so you're okay with this? Okay. We are well, neighbors. It's great. Yeah, so we're neighbors. So we get, to, okay. Yeah. I'm going to buy a copy, so if you all want to come over here, you can. So if, uh, if you want to hear the introduction and, and uh, start to walk through a review of that, please take this time to stand up, go in the dining room with Taylor, and have a great time. And if he's in there by himself, I'm going to go in and keep him company. All right? Nobody wants to go. Come on. Come on. Go listen to some great stories. In the meantime, for those of you who stay here, we are going to do our standard portion discussion. And uh, at the end of it, which, by the way, Joshua is going to lead us with, again, doing a great job there. If you would like to see the portion discussion morph a little bit, uh, we used to have a class from time to time. In fact, we would do a little teaching and then we would move on and do the portion discussion. So if that's what you'd like to see, then let Joshua or I know that, and we'll modify. In the meantime, son, you are up. <clears throat> hmm. Just to tack on to what he's saying, um, just want to encourage everyone uh, in here that uh, if you have a comment, please feel free to share. Um, I really like hearing all the comments. I know that uh, we've gotten some really cool, very interesting mystical stuff that's been brought up in recent weeks and some really neat like comments from uh, either Chabad or from the Midrash. But I want—I don't want people to ever feel intimidated by that. Like they can't, like they don't have anything to offer. Maybe you don't have a cool story along those lines. I tell my wife every week we get in the car how excited I am that this person made a comment. I never hear from this person, and they made a comment, and I loved it. So I just want to encourage everyone. Everyone has something to share. It doesn't matter um, kind of where it came from. It's, it matters about like uh, an opportunity to kind of hear what God's teaching you. Um, also, if I may, for those that are watching remotely. I often get emails from them. Who's the guy with the deep voice that says such and such? Because I want to, I like when he talks. Or that woman in the corner that we can't really see because she's always sitting in the back. She asks questions that I have. So you're already all celebrities. Step <laughs> up and share your thoughts so that Joshua can have a good discussion with you. And then along those lines, if you have questions, please, please, please ask. Um, and for those of you who I've been giving up some of these incredibly cool, deep mystical thoughts. I love those. Those really like, those encourage me, those excite me, they give me something new that I haven't thought about. Keep that up. Um, I know a lot of...
Uh, apparently, Eliyahu decided not to stick around, but that's okay. Um, did you feel? A, did you feel the rushing wind? Could you hear? Okay. <laughs> um, but just to uh, also just note that if you do have a really cool comment and you happen to use a phrase or concept that most people might not recognize, please translate or uh, or provide like a brief explanation, uh, just so that everyone can stick stick around and follow up. Um, obviously, if you're talking about the mitzvot, we all understand that, or at least I hope most of us do. If you don't, please ask. Well, we um, used to have a rule that if anyone used any Hebrew, we would all say in English. Try to translate, so that everybody yeah. Got it. I appreciate that. Uh, conceptually, though, it's important, too. If someone's the entire point hinges on the kelepot, you're going to have to explain that one, because I don't think most people get that. So, um, <clears throat> something like that. So, uh, just to encourage everyone, again, please ask questions if you have some. So, um, well, we're gonna, I just wanted to bring that up, just again, to encourage people and also to remind people to be kind. And remember, so not everybody knows all the cool phrases and words. Um, and hopefully, by the time we're done, if people explain, if people ask questions, then we'll get closer together and all, and all knowing this together, which is great. Um, so this week is Mishpatim, which is all about judgments. And we think of judgments, and I think some of us hear that word and they think of judgment, like, like God judging us. But, but actually, really, with the focus, if you, if you read through this uh, portion, which I now need one. Can someone hand me one from there? Um, the, uh, thank you so much. Um, the portion is all about justice, really, is a better way to translate that. And um, in, the, in the Midrash, on this particular portion, Rav Eliezer has a cool point saying that basically, like, this section, justice, is a huge part of the Torah. It's extremely important. And I think that for some of us, we might not realize that. You know, you, you read through all the stuff about your relationship with God and how you're supposed to fear God and he's holy and how you're supposed to respect him and worship him and all that stuff. And it's easy sometimes, I think, to lose sight of how essential these day-to-day interactions with other human beings are. But Rabbi Eliezer's point in the Midrash is that this is extremely important. And he points out that Sodom and Gomorrah and Israel were judged specifically because of their lack of justice. It wasn't the idolatry that nailed them. It was their lack of justice that was really the tipping point that knocked them over. And uh, he follows up by this cool little story about Judah. We all know Judah and Tamar. He has kind of an unseemly encounter with his daughter-in-law and ends up, um, she ends up getting pregnant. And she comes out and she says, uh, she has some of his items that he'd given to her because he didn't realize who she was and whatever, it's a long story. Um, And she comes out and she holds out some of the things that belong to Judah. And she goes, I am pregnant because of this guy. No, don't, don't, because uh, she was being dragged out to be um, put to death because she had committed uh, immorality. And, uh, and so in the, in the Midrash, Rav Eliezer has a story where he talks about how Isaac and Yaakov, I didn't know Isaac was still alive then, but, you know, that gives you more of a timeline idea. They pull Judah aside and they're like, please, please tell me, this isn't your stuff. I mean, that's just, that's just bad, you know? And uh, I'm obviously paraphrasing here. And Judah, to his credit, because he remembers, you know, exactly what had happened. He knew, he, he understood that it was indeed his stuff. He stands up. He takes it on the chin, says, no, I'm to blame. And he specifically says of Tamar, she was more righteous than I. I am the one at fault here. And owning that, preventing her from being punished unjustly, simply per, uh, pursuing that path of justice. Rabbi Eliezer says that is why God chose Judah to be the prince of Israel. In other words, the kingship would come from him for that. If you think about it, it's like just simply owning a mistake, not even so much like preventing the mistake, but having made one and then owning it and supporting the cause of justice by taking on the judgment himself and by uh, absolving a woman who was innocent, he ends up 
receiving an enormous blessing from Hashem. So the point of that story is to argue that justice is huge. So as we read through this portion, as we go through these sto- uh, these little dozens and dozens of little laws, don't just gloss over, don't tune out, don't go, well, I'm never going to get a chance to move somebody's donkey, so that doesn't apply to me. But really, like, think about it. Think, of how can I apply this to my life? What can this change me? How will this affect the way that I interact with people at work? How will this affect the way that I interact with my neighbor or a complete stranger in the street or on the road? Because um, this is really essential. Brock. Well, I was just going to mention that justice is also important on a larger scale because you look at every major civilization that's existed, you know, in the course of history, the Greeks, the Romans, the Carthaginians, the Babylonians, the reason they, all their empires failed is because at some point the corruption in their you know, mm-hmm. capital city got to the point where just everything dissolved. Right. And Absolutely. Not to say that you know, Israel is going to take over the world. Well, they will. But they will. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, focusing on, on that kind of thing you know, just on a nation level it is important to, to mm-hmm. um, just ensure things don't collapse around you. Absolutely. And you'll know that most of the traditions in, uh, of laws in, in Western society are based on the Torah. You'll probably find a whole lot of parallels in this chapter or in this section. So I've got you and you and my dad. So The, uh, the troubling response that we get from a lot of people that are um, walking in the visible expression of the church today uh, is that the, the law doesn't apply to them mm. anymore. The Torah has been done away with by Christ, and, and phrases such as these, or if you have the temerity to actually stand up and say, I keep the Torah. Well, nobody could keep the Torah. Well, I do, mm. every day. And they, you know, they think you're either nuts or you're a liar. <laughs> um, and, and I don't think that the ten words is where we should bring them. I think we should bring them to Mishpatim, mm. because I look at them and go, I know that you're keeping at least 90%. (laughs) Let's look at a whole bunch that are so clearly what you are already doing and agree with. You have a misconception of what the law is all about because the law contains the judgments and the kukot and those weirdness and stuff like that. But I think this is is really something we should grab onto and recognize. It's part of the Torah. And it's, it's acceptable to our friends and family who don't think we should be walking the Torah. True, and, and to reemphasize the importance of this, it's not just part of the Torah. It is who Hashem is. Amen. He is just. In fact, that's one of the things that, um, you know, if, if you ever, it, uh, I'll probably mention this later again, but if you ever in, endure a tragedy or see something awful happen to someone, the blessing is you bless God who is the true judge because everything that happens by God's hand is just and everything of course is by God's hand so everything in the universe is ultimately orchestrated for justice so when you act justly you are literally taking on the very character of Hashem mm-hmm. which is a huge deal that Mrs. Gordon and then my dad that's really neat I really appreciate that because that's so neat when we can kind of help them see exactly or just even remember ourselves how but um uh, anyway, don't remember my question oh. if it comes back to you raise your hand again the green guys, that's cool. Yeah, you are matching. Isaac and I are also matching this. Oh, okay, go ahead. Humility. I think that the justice idea is a um, much better way of saying it than judgment, too. And just, I was thinking about um, the fact that he owned and took responsibility for his sin. That was mm-hmm. humility. And mm-hmm. we know how God sees humility. So I just think that humility is one of the areas, too, that if 
we're humble. He'll give us a new, we get a newness and a new <laughs> opportunity, and that's a blessing. Yeah, there is a lot of um, forgiveness. In the midst of his justice, he is merciful also. So, yes, sir. Now, Mishpatim is more than just Mishpatim, obviously. They have, but the vast majority of this portion is is these these judgments, these Mishpat, Mish, Mishpatim, Mishpats. <clears throat> but um, to, to us that treasure God's words, these should be like a lullaby mm -hmm. that our parents mm -hmm. sung to us. Because uh, as Joseph correctly points out, these are these are these are words that you know probably a, at least the majority of the world could agree with at least in principle. Absolutely. Um, and and to us as a as a lullaby, a, a child that hears uh, his or her mother or father sing a lullaby may grow up and, and forget that that lullaby uh, meant what is meant comforting, nurture, protection. Uh, but eventually they will sing that lullaby to their children. Hmm. And when it's like a lullaby, sometimes, especially in the Messianic movement, in all religious movements to a degree, but there's always the sense that there's, well, I got that stuff. Give me the stuff that's new. Hmm. Tell me something that's really cool that I haven't heard before. Hmm. And I think it's a very dangerous trap, especially people in the Messianic movement. They always want to know something a little deeper than I heard last time. Hmm. We do the portion in cycles for a reason. And it's not to learn something deeper. It's to remember the lullabies. And these hmm. are the lullabies. These are the simple things that we understand, that we pass on to our children. They're the foundation, and I believe Eliezer's correct. They are the foundation and expression of God's righteousness. Hmm. Yeah, yes, sir. Just to dovetail with what Rick's saying, um, Moses said it, God said it, and Yeshua said it. These are the words that we should live by. Mm -hmm. Now, we should choose life, mm -hmm. and this is the life that we choose. Right? Absolutely. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that um, people recognize and understand these as being good, because some of these definitely don't, don't make sense to us all the time. I mean, I think sometimes in human... Um, discussions, we get a little uncomfortable. Like the first section, it's about slavery, which makes us a little uncomfortable. But actually, um, I think there's some ways to look at it that, that make us feel not only not uncomfortable, but to go, wow, God is so smart. He's so brilliant. Um, and, and my wife actually popped up this week um, at our Shabbat table with the coolest comment on this portion. And I really just, I just have to, have to, uh, have to tee it up for her because I was just so enthralled by it. So go ahead. Uh, yes, well, it, it wasn't me. I heard it. I think it was Rabbi Foreman. Um, <coughs> yeah. um, the world will continue tomorrow because she gave credit where credit's right? due. Right? Um, the, the man who wrote the Esther book. That's him. Uh, anyway, he his whole teaching was on the part where the um, the father sells his daughter into slavery, and he, he was mentioning that uh, it seems that slavery, the Bible, with 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 our history, American history, the Bible should just immediately say slavery is not allowed. <laughs> right. End of, end of story. But instead, they go into all this kind of slavery, um, just basically trying to make it make it more ethical. And so, but then we get to a very uncomfortable part about a man selling his daughter into slavery, and that just seems so cold. I and mean, why would he sell his daughter? Why don't he just sell himself? I mean, that seems like a nicer thing to do. And, um, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's his daughter. And they, uh, I'm not sure where the sages get this, but um, they, they talk about she, um, he sells her into slavery before she turns 12 years old. So when 
uh, when she turns 12, she goes free, is, is the point. So we're talking actually about a, a small girl, a, a little girl, which is kind of even worse. Um, <laughs> anyways. And it gets so, better, trust me. Yeah, it does get better. So it's like, but, but that's very uncomfortable. It's like, why, why would anyone do that? So he says it's because um, the entire point of selling the daughter is so that she will eventually get married. And you see that in, in the verses, it says she will not leave, like the leave-taking of the slaves, if she's displeasing to this master who would have designated for himself. It's like, we sold her for the purpose of her getting married. Mm-hmm. Now, um, and that is why she won't leave like the leave-taking of other slaves, because she does go out in the seventh year, and she does go out in the 50th year, so that's normal. But what's intended is that she gets married, and that's how she goes out from slavery, is she's supposed to be married. And it's she's supposed to be married to either her master, or he is supposed to marry her to somebody in his household, his son, or um, or somebody else. And but if she's displeasing, then um, he can have the the father redeem her or whatever. Anyway, but the whole point was for her to be married to the master or his son. So the rabbi says, um, but why? What's what's the point here? Why why would Beethoven be talking about this? And so he goes into what is. Um, he goes into finances, and he says that we've seen in the past that there are the rich and there are the poor, and inevitably, as society continues, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. It, this is how it always happens. And so we look at the poor and say, well, why don't they just get a program? Why don't they just get more rich? Why don't they get a good job and start making money? I mean, why, why does this happen? They don't. And he says it's because they have, there's two very different circles, two very different worlds. Rich people marry rich people and make rich friends, and poor people marry poor people and make poor friends, and they stay very segregated because of that. So um, he says this was the Torah's answer to that. We have a man who is so destitute, that he, and he's so poor, and he looks at his daughter and he says, I want her to have a better opportunity. Hmm. She won't have any opportunity. She's just gonna end up marrying another poor man from my circle, and, and she'll always be poor. So instead, he looks to a rich man and says, will you take care of her? And will you eventually marry her, or his son eventually marry her? In that sense, it's taking a poor girl and putting her into the rich circle. And it's, it's entwining those two worlds so that this, this person gets a better opportunity. We don't always have the poor and the rich, but they come together in that way. Well put. Isn't it brilliant? Oh, I like that. And what's so cool about that is this normally, I feel like, like we're talking about, this passage normally makes us uncomfortable, uncomfortable makes us bother us a little bit. But instead, when you look at it that way, Social Security. I, it's, it's, well, it's way better. I mean, like, the, like, like liberals in this country try so hard to help the poor out of poverty and make them with the rich. But the only way they can really do it is by pulling the rich down because there's no way to, like, equalize them. And the more money they keep throwing on the problem, the bigger, deeper the hole gets. So the poor people never really become wealthy because they don't know what they're doing with it, a lot of them, and that's not, not to speak Lashon or but there's, basically it's not fixing the problem. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, realizes the issue is not who has money, but rather the connections that you make with other people. And, and that, that whole idea is why it immediately mentions that if the man she ends up marrying, whether it's the man or his son or somebody in his household, takes another wife in addition to her, then God protects her rights because he can't look, the husband can't look at the wife as like, she used to be a poor servant girl, so I can treat her like a poor servant girl. She is my wife, and she has the same rights as anybody else you would marry, whether she was rich or poor. 
Right. It's just that's so brilliant. Boy, I like that. I hope that as you read this this parsha, as you read the other ones moving forward, that you get that excitement. You know, that to look at Hashem and to say, "Wow." I mean, as as a, as someone once said, you know, God's a genius. It's like this idea that God is so smart. He knows stuff that we don't know. So if something bothers you, if something you read, especially in the Torah, especially in, in some of these laws and rules, makes you go, that's weird. I hope that you spend more time to study it because there's probably something really neat deep inside. Yes, Mom? I've, I've read several things this week, so I don't remember who count this week. So anyway. <laughs> I understand that. I do all the time. And we lost our yeah, I was reading that, that there was no minimum wage jobs. Yeah. That as it was set up in the culture, you had land or you didn't. Mm. If you didn't have land, there was really no way to subsist. There was no way to get food. And so a kind thing to do would be to be a slave. And typically it was for a short period of time. It wasn't a lifetime thing. It was set for a number of days. And that slavery had existed from the beginning and that God had codified it and actually made it better. Mm-hmm. And made it, and and in reference to what a president just recently said about uh, in his speech about slavery in the U.S. and Jim Crow laws and stuff, they said actually <laughs> the slaves that were being sold on our land actually went against what God said because they had been kidnapped. Mm-hmm. That they had it says if you're kidnapped and sell someone, you die. And so it was this. They were he in reference to his kind of blaming Christians for using the Bible to codify their excuses, he said it was already set up. God did it in the right way right. and did it the good way and said, don't kidnap someone and sell them. Don't. Right. And, and that it was a kind way of providing a living for men and for families and for daughters. I think my dad's jumping on that point. Perhaps we should not use the word slavery because everybody understands the with, with some exceptions, Joseph is an exception. We work for an employer. We are we are bound to the employer. Yeah. Uh, we so there is there, it is indentured is a form of indentured servitude that we're reading about, not slavery. <laughs> right. The word slavery for, should be one hundred percent reserved from the most slave oriented people on the planet, and that's Muslims. Yeah, I was going to say who was selling them into kidnap? Oh, kidnapping them? That that would be the Muslims. So, you the know, word that's all buying them. Used in the apostolic scriptures is bond servant, bond servant mm-hmm. right? And and what's interesting, you know, it's always been interesting to me about this is we have Rav Shaul and many of the apostles who start out their epistles, you know, I Shaul, a bond servant of Messiah Yeshua, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Um, why is he making? Why is he referring to himself as a bond servant? He's clearly a free man. Mm-hmm. But he's he's harkening back to this actual portion of the Torah, which mm-hmm. is uh, specifically before the discussion on selling the daughter, when the discussion on a Hebrew slave, right? Where right. you know if you have a if you have a, another Hebrew as a servant, uh, you have to let them go in year seven, right? Um, and that whole that whole discussion about well if they. You know, if they uh, if they became married while in your service and they bear children, children are yours. You send the slave out by himself unless he arrived into your service with a family. Then you send the whole family out, etc. And when you send him out, you, you don't just say, "Okay, thanks for six years." You know, have a nice life. You have That's to right. send him with full provision so that he can essentially get back on his feet and start 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 over. 
unless, particularly in the case where maybe he became married while in your service, and now his, he doesn't want to leave because he doesn't want to leave his family, and if you've been a good master, you know, it says there, if he loves the master mm -hmm. and he loves his wife and children, he can go to the master and say, I love you, I love my family, I don't want to be set free, I want to forever be in your service. In which case, the master cannot refuse that, mm -hmm. and he has to take him to the judges, mm -hmm. um, and and there's a well, there's a procedure, right, where it's a, it, you know, he says, hey, this servant has said he does not want to be set free. He wants to forever be in my service. Is that true? Yes, it is. Right. So there's this kind of you know presentation with uh, before the judges, and it's made public. That you know that that oath of service, if you will, is made public. And then there's the whole thing if he takes him and he pierces his you know his ear with an awl, and you know there's a lot of cool I think symbols and connections there, but. The point is that Shaul, when he describes himself as a bondservant, he's saying, look, I love my master. Mm -hmm. I'm not leaving. Mm -hmm. That's why I am forever in his service. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing about that is the master, in this case Yeshua, cannot <laughs> refuse. Amen. And as long as he stays in his service, he has to provide all of his basic needs. Mm -hmm. He has to provide for his, his shelter, his clothing, his food, all of those basic necessities. It is the master's responsibility to provide all that. Hmm. Right. Yeah, very cool. And, and that is the Torah of the bondservant, and that's what's so cool when we see the disciples of Yeshua connecting with this mishpat and saying, no, I'm that. Right, and it's interesting that you mentioned the, some of the traditions about the all, because if you read this portion in Hebrew, you'll see a very uh, intriguing word. Um, in the middle of it, it says you're supposed to take him to the doorpost, and it says al ha mezuzah, um, because the location that you would pierce his ear with the awl to prove to demonstrate that he's a bondservant is the mezuzah, the location, the doorpost, which is literally the, the term we're using there. So when you put up a mezuzah, you're putting it on your doorpost. So I think that then it also brings in a little extra like symbolism when you when you go up and kiss the mezuzah. So you walk into a house, it's like. It's remembering whose servant Amen. you are. It is your husband. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when you think about why would you pierce the ear, what, what's the what's the ear used for? Shema. Oh yeah. To hear, right? Yeah. What do we think of immediately? What's the room? That's Shema. Wow. But Shema doesn't mean just hear. It means obey. Exactly. So it's a bond servant who is forever putting himself under the you know under the service and is forever saying I'm committing to be obedient to you. Right? Absolutely. So oh, me. Yes, sir. Ain Avigdor will be printed and <laughs> <laughs> um, I I to to Janet's point uh, with regard to slavery and uh, our president's recent comments. Um, for those of you who don't know what Jim Crow laws are, they are the laws that demanded that blacks be segregated from whites. And uh, Jewish writer, uh, news editor, Ben Shapiro. Anybody know Ben Shapiro? The guy's unbelievable. He's really, really young. I mean, he, he sort of reminds me of Jonathan Upton. You know, he just, um, he's just got a rounder head. He looks like him, too. He looks like him. But he, uh, he said, in response to the president's comment, comments, Christians obliterated slavery. <laughs> Christians point. obliterated Jim Crow. 
modern slavery is largely perpetuated by Muslims. <laughs> modern Jim Crow is certainly perpetuated by Muslims under Sharia law. Also true. Thank you, Mr. President. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. This is going back again to justice. It helps also to make sure that you're, you know, condemning the people who deserve to be condemned and not, not the innocent ones. So, um, speaking of which, innocence. I think this is a really cool portion here. Uh, when it starts talking about, we, we get into, we get diving into this. One of the things they start talking about is what happens when people die. I mean, this is an awful tragedy. Horrors happen when, when bad things happen to people. One of the worst things that can happen is someone to die. And, uh, and so God has to like walk through all of the different scenarios when people die and what can cause that death that might involve another person. Um, and so one of the things that he mentions is that sometimes it's an accident. Sometimes this poor guy, he didn't mean to. You know, he was chopping wood, as we read later in the Torah. He's chopping wood, and he swings back, and the axe head goes flying off and nails the guy who's working with him. I mean, that's just horrible. I mean, even today in modern society in, in America, we have manslaughter which is when you kill someone by accident. You didn't mean to. You were driving your car a little too fast, maybe a little too recklessly. Bad things happen. And this section actually is so powerful because in verse 13 it says, if a man had not lain in ambush and God had caused it to come to his hand. If you read the commentary below, um, what they're, they talk about is the idea that God made this happen. And that that's confusing and it's hard to understand. And that's why we come back to the blessing, the true judge. Because the only one you can give and take away life is God. And so in this particular case, in this horrific tragedy, it's God who's, who's doing this. But he has a reason. He has justice. Whether it's, in some cases, uh, as, as if you read through, um, or read through some things like the Garden of Peace by Shlomo Rush, he argues that some people's mission in life is done. They, they accomplished what they were sent to do. So it's time for them to come home. For other people, they have done evil in the past, and they got away with it. But God made sure they got their just dessert in the end. So regardless of what the reason is, whether it's because the person was noble or whether it's because the person was wicked, whatever the case may be, God is just. And I think this should be encouraging. I mean, I, I, hope, I don't know everyone's backstory. Hopefully no one in this room has been involved in the untimely death of another human being. If you have, um, my heart goes out to you because that has to be awful. But that's, I hope this is also encouraging and also a reminder to us, even, even just as we watch the tragedies that happen in the world, that God is just, that they, he's in charge. And we don't have to, we don't have to blame ourselves necessarily. Um, although I do think that when, when bad things happen, we should at least take the time for introspection to say, was this caused by something that I did? But if, it's, but if you don't see something, you don't have to carry around the burden of it because ultimately it's in God's hands. And uh, I think that's what's so cool about this passage. God's in charge. Now, of course, there are still consequences. The guy who kills somebody by accident has to go live in a city of refuge for X amount of time until the high priest dies. So it's not like... It's not like it, you just get away with it, you get a do-over. Because God recognizes this is a serious business. But God also emphasizes his own sovereignty in the midst of it. Which I think is really cool. I've got you, and then Morgan. So, so I, I think the first thing um, is to... I, th I think it's important to correct people who say that life is not fair. <laughs> you know, God never said life would be fair. In fact... Life is deliberately unfair. Thank goodness. But it is just. And this speaks of justice, not fairness. Right. In fairness, everybody gets the same thing. In justice, they get what God would have them to have. Right. So justice is what needs to happen here. And um, you mentioned uh, the consequences. So I'm, I'm down in verse 24 because I hear this verse misquoted 
and pulled out of context oh, yeah. all the time. Eye when, for an eye. An eye for an eye. Do you want me to poke his eye out? I mean, you know, <laughs> is that what you think we should do? We should be killing our kids and we should poke, be poking everybody's <laughs> eyes out. Knocking their teeth out. And knocking their teeth out, right. And, and Sometimes you, I, we should knock your teeth out. No. Well, I, don't, I just do not believe that it's possible for you to start in verse 22 when men strive together and hit a woman with child so that her children come out. I just don't think that you can actually read this paragraph ending up with the eye-for-eye thing and not turn the heart of the person you're speaking with. It's not possible. They're going to hear this, and they're going to go, oh, well, well, that actually sounds, that sounds just. That sounds good. But it, this, this phrase only appears three times in the Torah. If you start here, this is the first one, you may actually turn a heart to at least read the rest of the Torah. And what's it talking because about? Because it's just. Because I think the thing is, people often assume that that's a physical punishment. Um, Judaism teaches that this was never carried out physically. Not, it's an allegory physical. to argue for justice. In other words, if, if I do something really bad to someone else and injure them, the, the penalty I have to pay, which is a financial penalty always, should equal that. Which, if you think about it, that really makes a lot of sense. In other words, if I happen, God forbid, to poke your eye out, I should pay for you whatever damages are necessary for losing your eye, which is a big deal. But on the other hand, he should not be able to sue me for $800 million because I felt bad and it hurt my feelings. And now I know, you know, it's like I was smoking the cigarettes. I didn't know it was going to give me lung cancer. And that's it, you know, all these different things. And I think that when we see what's happening in our court system today, we see what happens when people give four or five eyes for one eye. And it's like, well, that's not fair. That's not just. That is, that's not even fair. But it's definitely not just. And God's point here is to argue for justice, to say that it should be equal. We should feel bad for the victim. But the victim doesn't end up getting bonus points just because of the victim. They get what they deserve, what they lost. They get the payment for what they lost. Justice. They get justice. So I've got a thousand hands. We're going to start with Morgan and then Greg, and then we're going to come back around again. So. This was a question about slavery. We love questions. Go for it. Um, so the slave who wants to stay and gets his ear pierced, um, I, I don't know if we know exactly where it was, but I've heard, um, oh, well, we're on it, um, but I've heard people who are against, like, modern-day ear piercing, like, take that and say, you're women who do it, well, oh, you all look like slaves, (laughs) because that's a sign of slavery to have your ears pierced. Huh. Um, is that We're talking about taking something out of context? I don't think I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily argue that for two reasons. Number one, um, it, well, let me just start off by saying if you are piercing your ear with an awl, I strongly encourage you to think about the long term consequences of that. Every now and again I see some, you know, twenty two year old with one of the massive rings in there. And I bolt. You know, a the big bolt. bolt, whatever else. And oh. I think, and that's, that, nothing, I mean, I, you know, you do what you want to do. I'm just warning you, you that at some point you are going to be 60 with, with that. Yeah. And you might, you, there might be some job interviews that don't go so well because the guys just can't stop looking at your ears. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> the holes that women are talking about, obviously, are much smaller. More importantly, this, I think, is only in reference to a guy. I don't think there's any woman who ever get their ears pierced for this. So... If you're a woman getting your ears pierced, different. at the very least, it's a different category because they don't pierce women's ears. They're piercing the men's ears. Um, 
Ear. And I, I'm ear. trying to think ear. through this. Like, one ear. One ear, yeah. Which ear? Um, and again, right we're talking a huge hole. I mean, this is Just this like is a leopard. pretty sizable I, hole. Well, I would assume. We're talking about all. Okay, fine. It's the same hole that you put in a belt. It's visible. It is visible. It's a punch. Look at your belt. It's that size hole. That is still fairly large compared to a needle. That's true. Yes, it is. That's true. So I think my dad would be a comment on that. We'll come back. Do you have a comment on that? No. Okay, we'll come back. Just to be clear, you talked about eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, as what it means. There are, Peshat is the supreme of all supreme. The simple, fact, the, cup, Mish, the top level. Mishpatim is Plain. Peshat, it is face value. It means what it means. Sometimes people are confused when they word, read words. They use in everyday language, they use language, they speak in idioms, and everybody understands what's being said, and nobody ever goes, what did you really mean? And unfortunately, they don't give they don't give <laughs> our scriptures the same the same rights. I need a horse. We need to under, we need to understand when an idiom when an idiom is used. Everybody understands exactly what it means. If you don't understand that language, you need to find out what it means. Hmm. But it is an idiom. It is a mm -hmm. figure of speech. It's always been a figure of speech. Which always seems to work in the newspaper and rarely exactly. works in the Bible. <laughs> exactly. Part of the problem is we don't know what the idioms mean. And that's because, because we have to know the language right. to start with. You have to start by understanding the culture. And that's why I strongly encourage um, you know, people who do want to study some of the things from the sages, read some of the commentaries, go for it. If you have the time, spend that time because that's when you start to learn some of the the culture, the traditions that inform these these idioms, these phrases. Like, for example, when Yeshua is talking about, you know, if your eye is evil, and everyone always goes to that and they go, oh, well, see, if you're looking at stuff you shouldn't be looking at, then that's how great is that darkness in you? And the context in that passage is all about money, which is like, well, if you're if you're if you're looking at bad money, like, what's why are we talking about all of a sudden we change subjects and we come back to money again? Well, you shouldn't be looking at bad things. But that's not Yeshua's point. Yeshua's point is the eye is evil is actually an idiom that refers to being um, greedy, stingy. You know, it's like, hey, man, can I have a loan? You go, you know, eye is evil, right? I mean, it's a very obvious. It's like it's a, it's a physical idiom. You can see. You probably you probably had situations where you asked somebody for something and he gave you that eye. Like, really? I don't think so. But that's the point. Like, that's that's the idea. So it's like if you know the idiom, it means so much more. By the way, that idiom is actually in the Tanakh. If you go reading in like Psalms and Proverbs, you will see it there. So it's not like you just have to know the, the tradition, the culture, but really that helps. It adds so much more depth to it. I've got Gregory, and then I've got Mary, and Brock, and I've got Mr. Ruffles. So we're going to go in a big group here. Uh, okay, so simultaneously? Yeah, All at once, now. Go. Yeah. Uh, so when, it, when we're talking about God as the judge, it's really, it's so, this particular year, it has helped to remember like how much more important a law is coming from God than it is coming from oh, our yeah. own society. Because yeah. like we just brought up, <laughs> so many people probably do a vast majority of these, but their reasons would be because that's the law of the land. Mm -hmm. Less True. so that it's Very because true. it's the law of God. True. So I've just been trying to think of the way that you would be able to view the laws that way because of how much more weight they, they carry <laughs> than coming from God. And it's so cool that James brings up this whole, he has like this whole little thing in James 4 about the being a judge and like why you should never judge. And part of his reason is the proof that God is the one lawgiver is because he can save and destroy, which we see in this 
portion, you see like how God will say like this person is saved from this, you know, the, like the manslaughter. Um, he, he gets saved and gets to go to the city of refuge because he's fleeing from the person who would avenge the blood. And then you also have other situations where it's like that person just needs to be killed right away. And it's just, that is, it, it makes it a lot more real to know that like, well, the, this lawgiver is the one that saves and destroys. He's the one that's, he's the only one that's actually sovereign. And it does, it follows that particular phrase that I just quoted with, who are you to judge one another? <laughs> Which is so convicting too, because it's hard sometimes mm -hmm. not to compare our, our own halakha to people or compare just various things and see someone do something wrong and I've once used like the the excuse for pointing out someone doing something wrong is like, well, if I was you know, seeing someone that was about to eat something that was poisonous and they didn't know it was poisonous, like obviously I would want to try to rescue them from that. But typically, we find that it's usually not when it's usually not a situation where the other person has no clue that it's wrong. It's just that they don't think it's wrong. They know that some might think it's wrong. <laughs> but anyway, so it's just helpful to remember from God's sovereignty standpoint, like, he is the one true judge, and we yeah. aren't to judge. That really, I think, encourages us, I think, to remember that one of the things you should be very careful with when you're talking about passing judgment on others, speaking behind their back is never good. And secondly, if you're going to speak to their face, you really should do it in private, because you never want to embarrass your neighbor. The sages talk about embarrassment is, is like murder. That's a huge deal. So before you just, you just throw it around, like um, calling somebody out in front of a group of people, you might think about maybe pulling them aside first and just, you know, because Yeshua talks about this. You don't go to the whole congregation until the last step. That's kind of a big deal. So let's not jump, you know, put the horse before the cart, so to speak. Just, just real quick on that, on that judgment thing. Um, I, I hear all the time that uh, folks will say, well, I don't want to judge. Hmm. Okay, I get that. But if God has already judged, it's not you that's judging. God has already judged. Homosexuality is a great example. It's wrong. Well, you know, I, I'm not to, you know, whatever, you know, it's between them and God. Yeah, it is between them <laughs> and God. But you don't have to judge whether that's right or wrong. God oh already God. did. Mm -hmm. You're not judging. He did. Now, whether or not they should wear long sideburns versus short sideburns, whether or not they should color their hair blue, that is a judgment call. And I don't think you should judge. Hmm. Good point. Be careful about what we're talking about here. Mm. So, um, actually, the sages do make that point too. Just a distinction. They do uh, like when they talk about pork chops. Uh, <laughs> judgments, judgments about things. They do try to differentiate between what is a rabbinic decree right. and what is a god decree. Exactly. Obviously, your miles will vary on which you agree is which category. But the point being that they do try to make that distinction because of that very point that when God has said yes or no, is is uh, there's no debate, non-negotiable. Right. Non exactly. But on the things that man has said yes or no. It's kind of up to you and how far you want to go. Well, it's not necessarily up to you, but it's up to you as it's up to you as part of a part of a society, mm -hmm. a part of a, a part of a group. And it's about it's about feeling comfortable and it's about uh, not embarrassing people mm -hmm. and, and not being uh, too different from everyone else. All of those things play into that same role. Absolutely. Um, I think I got Brock and then Mary and then Mr. Ruffin. Oh, okay. Mary first. Mine's about the city of refuge. Okay, go for it. Okay, it's um, it's short. It's actually coming from last year, or actually two years ago. Um, this is why she takes notes. But that's good. That's good. I like that. And I just thought it was cool to read because I heard someone say city of refuge. So this is comparing the the guy who commits manslaughter cannot leave the city of refuge until the high priest dies, right? Mm -hmm. And someone, and I think it was Mr. Upham or Mr. Spurlock, because I didn't put the name. 
Um, sorry. Uh, compared that to how we cannot leave the city of refuge, we can't be atoned for until our high priest dies on our behalf hmm. and compared it to Messiah. Mm. Right, yeah. I think if there's no affirmation, it's probably your father. It wasn't me, it's got to be you. Good point. Very cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we, that's another thing I encourage you as you're reading through these things. Look for those. Find the ones that go, oh, I, 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 I can identify with that. Yeah. I get that. Um, and that's one thing. Uh, if, if you, um, It was pretty deep. So just as a warning in advance, if you didn't listen to the classes last Tuesday, that was one of the coolest parts of the whole class, was Pete walked through, not uh, going through the whole realm of um, interpretation, um, that this is a Peshat, the simple, the, the surface level, which is the most important, and always has to go back and support that. And then you've got all these different levels of commentary and interpretation and, and thinking about it. And th one of the points is that like, you use that to reinforce your practice, to reinforce your attitude of Hashem to reinforce the Peshat, the simple, the basic meaning. You know, Joshua, just uh, to Mary's point of looking back two years, everything that you guys say every time we come together is online in the in the podcast. And I know that there's several families, when we're not meeting, they actually listen to the portion discussion from last year, two years ago, three years ago, for that very that very portion. Well, we probably didn't do Mishpatim last year because it was on the off Shabbat. <laughs> you know, so... Uh, those are those are pretty cool and very handy, and it, it's really amazing to, to hear how many men's voices have gotten lower. <laughs> <laughs> Where to access the recording? Uh, if you uh, if you go into iTunes and you search for Bella Torah, you will find this podcast. If you search for Men of Torah, you'll find the Tzadi class on Tuesday nights. Cool. If you do that and you still can't find it, or you know you're using a Windows computer and you don't have iTunes. Um, Suffer in Gehenna. No, no, just, just, just email me and I'll, I'll send you a link right back. But uh, I, I think if you go to, yeah, I think if you go to, to the Men of Torah site, if you can't find it, if you go to the Men of Torah site, I think there's a link right there as well. But your best bet is just to go to iTunes. Thank you, Mark. Oh yeah, and the ladies' fellowships that have been going on, and you guys have had two or three already. Those are in there's uh, in the Bellatora audio. So, I think the last one there right now is the last February fellowship meeting? that uh, the February meeting. That's right. Julian had discussed on fertility and um, and, and, and dealing with uh, infertility as well. So, um, cool class. Okay. Rock, you're next. Okay. Um, one thing that this portion highlights, but it's almost like you blink and you miss it, <laughs> is. Um, the severe consequence that comes with not treating your mother and father with Ooh, respect. Yeah. And Preach it, brother. Preach it. Um, and it, it's something that not only our culture, but the current expression of the church, I feel misses <laughs> because, you know, you, you walk into any given church on any given Sunday, and, you know, it's hard not to, you know, look around and see you know, you walk into a mall, it's hard not to look around and see, you know, children disrespecting their parents. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's it, 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 it's a trickle-down effect. You know, yeah. you don't treat your parents with respect and everything they deserve. Your, your children won't do it. And it, this this portion highlights the severe consequence that occurs. It's the death. Right. You, you strike your father and mother, well, you die. <laughs> you right. dishonor your, your you, you know, you curse, curse your them. father and mother, you die. Right. And then, you know, it was included in the ten words, you know, honor your father and mother. Your left, your yeah, top. 
And they say that the reason why the, the honor your father and mother is in the first half, which is all about God, is because your father and mother are, in a sense, the representation of God right. in your life. Exactly. So to disrespect them in whatever course may be, and the most extreme, of course, would be to hit them or to curse them, is to have treated God the same way. In fact, throughout the, the Midrash, they keep connecting all of these commandments about killing somebody um, back to the old, the old ancient concept of uh, kings would put up their statues all over the place. Um, to, to emphasize that they're they're king of this area, kind of like you having on your money a picture of the president or whatever else. It's like to say, this is led by so and so, or these people are important to us. This is the type of culture we have, whatever. So the king will put up his statues, and if you happen to be foolish enough to go and knock over one of these statues, or throw a rock at one of these statues, or whatever the case may be, you are in huge trouble because it was like you were attacking the king himself. And so the, the Midrash is trying to get back to this, this portion and saying, when you mistreat another human being who is made in the image of God, it is as if you are mistreating Hashem himself, which is a huge deal. I'm going to let Barak follow up on that since we were on his topic. Um, I was blessed this last couple of weeks to be staying with my in-laws, and I, and I got to see this, this, this happen because uh, Jenny's grandmother uh, getting advanced in years, and um, the doctors say she, she can no longer you know, live alone. Hmm. And, and the normal um, thing to do at this point would be to put her in a nursing home. Well, Jenny's parents did not do that. She they instead brought her to live with them. Hmm. And, you know, it's it's one of, I just, I just find that amazing because it's, it is hard to take okay. care of an, an older mm-hmm. person. You know, it is it's a huge commitment. You put a huge you know, limit on your, your freedoms and things you do, and especially um, uh, you know, the work that they do on the farm it takes all day. And, you know, just to do that is amazing. And, and, it, and it's honoring to, you know, their mother. So I, it was just amazing to see that in action and then read about it. Yeah. Um, the consequences of not doing that. <laughs> right, exactly. Very cool. Same topic or new one? Same topic. Okay, well, we're going to come to Mr. Ruffin in a minute. Uh, I was reading a really cool book. I, can't remember, I think it was The Seven Seasons of a Man's Life that talks about how um, having religion and your life as a parent is incredibly important. And we were talking about how the way you treat your parents is the example you'd be setting for your children. Mm-hmm. And True. it brings religion into that because as a parent, to tell your child to do something, saying just because or, or because that, that's the law, and not having a religious background, not having a higher being that you have to answer to yourself, mm. are leading it as though I'm king. I can just do whatever I want, and I don't have to answer to anybody. But when you have that higher being that is more king, the one that you have to answer to, it brings it to the child where the child sees you saying, no, you can't do this, and then also sees you with a law that you have to abide to as well. Mm-hmm. It brings that extra power to it. I too am a man under authority. Absolutely. Same topic? Yes. Okay. Just we'll a get brief aside uh, for all you young adults and kids and whatever, one thing I have learned in my lifetime and I have seen in others is for husbands to love their wives and wives to respect their husbands helps lead to obedience in your children. Mm, yeah. Um, I, I was astounded one day in the parking lot hearing a lady just chewing what I thought her little boy out and turned around to see she was chewing her husband out. Mm. It was shocking. Um, but that leads to disrespect on your children's behalf. Absolutely. I mean, what example do they have? It's like, well, if mom can do that, then surely I can. Just, just, just on that, um, one thing that I always thought was weird uh, growing up, but I understand now is, is de- my, my father would be like, um, okay, children, you know, everyone, he would announce it, everyone, tonight is date night. 
and none of you will bother us, and I'm doing this for you. <laughs> <laughs> this is so, it is very important for you to know that uh, right. we, we still love each other, and right. for that reason, you may not bother us, unless you're <laughs> bleeding or dying. Great. That's a great rule, and I, you know, I think, you know one of the cool parts, I think, as a young man, as a young married man, is when you start to realize, and not just, not, not just appreciate, but you start to implement the things that your father did. I remember my dad always, he would look at her on the table and be like, sons, your, my, your mother, my wife, is the most beautiful woman in the whole world. And of course, we would all immediately agree, absolutely, yes, yes, yes. We have, unfortunately, you're second now, but, you know, close enough. Um, but, but then she, he would, um, he would say, he would do things, like one of the traditions he came up with was finding a specific thing from the week to tie in with Eshet Chayil. He would, I mean, sometimes it was kind of, kind of humorous, but he would always try always to remember. He would try to tie in a good thing that my mom did to note that I don't just speak this, this praise of you generically because it's a tradition, but I really am paying attention. I see the things that you do, and that's been something that I've added into my life and apparently has spread like wildfire throughout the community. So um, it's really cool, though, and to go back to the point you were making, it, it, is a, it is a generation by generation thing. And that's one of the things that the sages talk about, like with with these, you know, judgments and whatnot. It is about passing it on. It is about sharing it to the next generation. And so, when you do it, you do share it. Yes, sir. Anyone else? Anyone else? <laughs> Patience is a virtue. Um, actually. Oh, look at the time. <laughs> actually, just to tack on a slightly, a slightly different twist, or similar, but slightly different, on the whole honor your, you know, your mother and father, the fifth word, um, along the lines of what you said, slightly different, is the idea there is that it actually doesn't take just two to tango, as it were, because it takes, it takes the husband and a wife coming together, but it takes a shem mm -hmm. right, to implant the soul. Mm -hmm. So therefore, uh, if you are disrespecting your parents, Hashem, the reason it's on the first tablet, not the second, is because if you're disrespecting the, 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 your parents, you're disrespecting Hashem because he was involved with them <laughs> right. in right. your creation. Wow. So, um, so it really is more about Hashem uh, than just about the parents. Absolutely. So, That's a really uh, good point. Going back to the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, all of that, uh, it's interesting that Messiah uh, Yeshua in Matthew 5, he comments on this. Right? He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, so forth and so on, but I say to you, if a, you know, if a man you know, strikes you on the cheek, mm -hmm. turn the other cheek, mm -hmm. right? So what's interesting is Messiah is actually he's actually making sure people understand that you cannot interpret an eye for an eye and a tooth for right. tooth, at tooth for tooth as um, as uh, advocating personal vendetta mm -hmm. or taking vengeance into your own hands. Right? Mm. It's because, about justice, right? It's about justice, and it's about it's about um, damages and penalties mm -hmm. as prescribed by a a valid court of law, right? right? Um, but you cannot use it um, as justification for taking personal vengeance on someone, right? Or um, you know, personal vendettas, right? And and then of course he also you know makes the point that look, um, you cannot if somebody 
if, if somebody slaps you on uh, your right cheek, uh, which, you know, if you think about that just in terms of uh, just the process there, if for somebody to, if most people are right-handed, right, for, for somebody to slap me on my right cheek, if they're swinging with their right hand, it actually means they're back. Oh, they're yeah. back Backhand. It's a backhand. Back. Right? So it's not like a fist assault. It's an insult. Right. Okay. Okay. So if so if they if somebody strikes me on my right cheek, which implies that they're insulting me, right. then I turn and let them go ahead, insult me again. In other words, don't let insults. Right. Um, drive you to react. Right. And we just yeah, it's not saying roll over and let somebody you know full on attack you. That's right. not what he's saying. Right. We, we just saying, read that in the Musar where he right. said how you react to insults is is all about who you really are. Right. Inside. Right. Because if somebody were to, uh, you know, if somebody were to slap me and bruise me or whatever, I'm entitled. Uh, under the law for some sort of compensation, compensation or some there's some justice mm. that ought to be measured out potentially mm. right he's saying don't collect on the justice in those cases let it go mm. right mm. so he's saying he's, he's he's up the ante as it were Paul raises yeah. the same point in first Corinthians chapter 6 yeah. Let yeah. it go. Let yeah, just let it go. Because is there something to it's not as important, right. you know, as right. as society, as community, and whatever or, else. Or there is a more important thing than that. Right. It reminds me of what we pray at the end of the Amidah yeah. every day, right? My soul be like dust to to those who hate me, etc. etc. Right, right, right. right. It's the same idea. It's look, you know, I'm not going to there's certain things. I mean, if you're attacking my family, whatever, or if you're attacking me with the intent to obviously harm you, harm me, and kill me, or whatever, then you know that's you're a different go. that's a different matter altogether. Talk to Judah about how to respond in that case. But but if somebody's <laughs> going to get upset, oh, you know, or I'm going to make someone feel uncomfortable for some reason to the point where they're going to insult me uh, un, unjustifiably or whatever, mm. he's saying walk away from that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. so. That's absolutely true. I mean, he talks about Proverbs about like you know a man who does not give into his anger. That's like a, that's a that's a pretty cool dude. He's a very important, powerful kind of personality. That's even if you are, even if you would be just in a response, right. saying don't do it. Yeah, good point. And yes, James, sir. James brings that up when he says justice is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, mm. and then he follows that up with mercy always triumphs over judgment. Amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you think we're actually in this, we're going to skip ahead a little bit because we're we're kind of running behind here. But if you move forward um, later on, you get to um, let's see where is a section talking about uh, taking interest, taking care of the poor. Yeah, I'm trying to remember exactly um, where it is. Oh, we're in chapter 22, and if I skip something anybody really wants to say, feel free to chime in, but we just want to keep it moving because we're getting, we're already getting towards the end here. Um, but it says, uh, chapter 22, verse 24, when you lend money to my people, to the poor person who is with you, do not act toward him as a creditor, do not lay interest upon him. If you take your fellow's garment as security until sunset, shall you return it to him. And if you look at this one, it's there's a couple of really cool concepts from the sages on this whole section. I mean, I love if you've ever read the Midrash, it's really funny. Like, 
a chapter like this, I mean, as we could speak, we spent an hour. We spent an hour on this. <laughs> that mid, that whole volume only covers like what, maybe a half dozen different parashot. Like it's. Uh, it's like maybe four parashot. Yeah. So you like it's huge, and yet probably half of the one on this portion covers this this passage. I mean, it's like, or they cover half of it covers the first verse in the passage. So they're getting like the really nuanced stuff. But on this one, they have some really cool points. And one of them goes back to what you were saying, is that we are all debtors to Hashem. He, we owe him our lives. We have sinned against him. And yet he forgives us. Yet he treats us with goodness on a, gen, on, a relative, on a regular basis. How then can we, even if we might be justified in taking from others who owe us, how can we treat them with, with callousness or, or a lack of mercy? Because... Hashem has treated us differently. Yeshua says the same thing. If you do not forgive, God will not forgive you. So it's kind of a big deal to treat them well. And it's interesting because one of the things it points out is uh, talking about the poor person, don't act to him as a creditor. Don't take, um, don't take usury. Don't take interest from him for a loan. And uh, in, in, uh, in one of the things in the Midrash that it talks about is it says that all of suffering is on one side and poverty is on the other side. Because poverty, living a life of poverty, is so awful. It is such a terrible thing to have to bear that it is the equivalent of all the other suffering. And they, they had this midrash where they talk about how like Job was given the choice of either all the suffering he went through or to be you know, put into poverty. He chose the suffering. Then he complained about it later, and that was part of why you know, God wasn't so happy with him. It's like, hey, you asked for it. Um, but point being that like the poverty is a huge deal. And I... As we read through this portion, as we read throughout the Torah, you'll see over and over again, take care of the poor person. Take care of the poor person. Don't let your eye look evil, you know, towards a poor person. Open your hand. In this case, don't act like a creditor. And they're saying, the poor guy, he's, he's endured a lot already. He is suffering. How, how can you, like, you know, beat him down while he's down? It's like, you can't, don't take, uh, don't take usury from him. Don't take interest from him to put his life in even a, a deeper sadness. Um... And it's interesting because I never thought of poverty as a curse. I think I've always thought of poverty as a choice. And certainly, I think for some people, that is true. A lot, there are definitely people whose, whose poverty, I think, has come upon them because of their, their mistakes. And the sages would agree. Consequence. But sometimes, poverty is what they were born into. Poverty is the life cycle we were talking about earlier that they are stuck and caught in. Poverty is the environment that they're in. And they just can't get out. And you might look at it and say, well, in our country, that's not true. But I can guarantee you, you walk downtown, there are definitely some people down there who are very poor, and I'm almost certain there's something in their background, situations, physical, whatever else, they're not getting out. They couldn't get out, and this is their burden to bear. And actually, the, the sages say that a poor person who bears his, and the Midrash are talking about this, the portion who, person who bears his poverty with humility, with grace, he gets a double portion in the world to come. Because it's a huge deal to deal with poverty well. So I hope to encourage you that when you see poor people, don't, don't, don't despise them. Don't look at them and go, oh, psh, bet he's doing drugs. You know, whatever else. Because they may deserve where they are, but they may not. It may have been the lot that God has given them. Um, and I think that should be encouraging to us to be like, well, then I, I certainly should be generous. Because it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not like I'm rewarding them for bad behavior. On the contrary, I am reaching out my hand <coughs> to someone who needs it. Um, and being like Hashem, because throughout the scriptures, they say in Proverbs, the poor man, even his relatives don't like him. But what does it say about Hashem? The sages in the Midrash key in on this. They say that he is close to the poor. He counts the poor as his brothers. It says that when he's going to return Zion, he's going to bring the poor to be refu have refuge there first. 
In other words, the, to God, the poor people are his close ones. And I think that should also be a reminder to us who have like gone through suffering or through tragedies in our lives. It's like God has a special place in his heart for you. Um, and we should definitely be treating the poor with respect. So when we read through this passage and it talks about taking care of the poor, it's a big deal. So I'm trying to remember who I had first. I think it was Brock, and then my dad, and then Dad Shaney, so to speak. In <laughs> second. Um, yeah, I completely agree with, you know, taking care of the poor. However, in the next chapter, there is a slight, you know, clause to that when it just talks about justice, and it, it, it's oh, saying, yeah. you know, take care of the poor. Not, do not pervert justice on their behalf. Right, that's true. So, you know... You see if, a lot of that going on. If if they do something, you know, you know, don't you know, don't steal from one to give another. If they do something wrong, they should be punished for the crime. But you know, at the same time, you know, be generous, but don't pervert justice. Absolutely, and I think that's that's a big thing today because I think oftentimes, like liberals, and I'm not attack all liberals. Some liberals may not believe this, but I feel like I, the general gist I get from a lot of liberals is that um, people are rich, and that's to their default. Like that's because they did something wrong to get there. It's like that's not true. There are lots of wealthy people who worked very hard like, with they like have. Like it's evil to be rich. Like it's evil to be rich. But then on the flip side, they do what you're talking about, and they treat poor people like, well, the only reason they're poor is because they've been mistreated by the rich. So we should take money from the rich to get to the poor. We should automatically get the poor people an edge in life because obviously the rich people put them there, whatever the case may be. And as you say, like God's very careful. He's like, justice is still justice. You don't treat the poor man. You don't give him an advantage in the courtroom because he's poor. You don't give him a... Um, you don't give him something he doesn't deserve because he's poor. On the flip side of that, you're encouraged to be generous. You're encouraged to support them. I'm talking about loans with no interest. I work for a bank. That's kind of a big deal. Like, that's how the bank makes money, is to give out a loan at interest, which, by the way, is okay as long as it's not in your people and whatever else. But um, we're talking about in the community, in, within the people of God, to give out a loan. I mean, some of these loans, I'm assuming, are not just five bucks. Here, go buy a Coke, Coke or soda. It's probably, we're talking like, I'm going to start a business, I need some money, you know. You go to the wealthy guy, and he gives you a huge, a huge loan. And there's all these rules about the in way you cannot take interest from this guy. And he can't even take interest from, like, he can't even offer to give interest to you. It's like, that's also wrong. It's like, it's like they make, they're very, very careful to make sure that what you do and what he does, it's like the money is free, no strings attached. That's a big deal. And I think that that's, again, going back to the idea of being generous um, and being supportive. So I think... I've got next is boom, boom, and boom. So, Dad. You'll need to close your ears for this. Uh -oh. <laughs> really, seriously. Uh, okay, Don't want to take your portion in the world of <laughs> Um When Joshua lived in Jerusalem, Joshua would go out of his way if he knew that one of the beggars that he knew by name would be someplace at a certain time. So he'd go out of his way to actually make sure that he met up with various beggars all over town. So. That's a bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> a very but big exaggeration. Of course it is. And now you've just, now you've just, fortunately, hopefully gotten a portion of your back. <laughs> the, point is, the point is that it, that it is, uh, it's one thing to talk about uh, being, uh, being uh, humble and compassionate to those who have less. Uh, but it's quite another thing to put it into practice. And it needs to be, it doesn't need to be simply something that we do uh, when it occurs to us, but it has to be a regular practice, mm -hmm. something we consciously 
uh, uh, do because it, because the scriptures hopefully will remind us constantly of this burden that we have, this responsibility we have to care for those who are le- have less. Thank you, sir. Baruch Hashem. Um, and I think that when we get to um, thinking about that whole issue, talking to a different different guy altogether, a Rabbi Karlbach, one of the things that he would do is he would carry around $5 bills. He would never give a guy, a poor man, less than 5 bucks. which I have to say, if you live uptown, walk into these guys pretty regularly, that could be an expensive habit, um, depending on where you're going. That's, that's really amazing. But the reason he would do that is because he didn't want to insult them. Like, really? Like, you know, the guy's asking for money. How much more insulting can that be? But it's like, the point being is that, like, what are you going to do with a dollar or 50 cents? So he'd always bring around $5 bills to hand out. When he died, the p- poor people in New York City stood outside of the synagogue to mourn him. Wow. I can't even imagine what his reward is in the world to come. So I hope that you are encouraged to, to be similarly generous. I know it's, sometimes it's hard. I know it's hard. One of the things I think Colby brought up one week, um, I think it was Colby, is that it's part of why God makes us give gener- generosity is to get over anger. Because when you, when you watch some guy walks up to you and you look at him and you're thinking, you look 25, why are you on the streets begging for money? No, I don't want to give you five bucks. And he goes, you know, hey, I have to do this, some story. And you're thinking to yourself, I don't believe a word he's saying. You get angry. You should, you should put that down. Pull out your wallet. Hopefully you have some cash on you. Good, good reason to have some cash on you. Give the guy something, and bless Hashem for giving you the opportunity to do a mitzvah. So, uh, let's see, I think I've got you next, and then we're going over here and back to Greg. So for those of you who don't listen to the um, Tzadi class feed, on the 7th of October, there's one in the feed called Tshuva, Tzedakah, and Tefillah. The three T's, and that is, uh, uh, what's Tshuva? Repentance, uh, charity, in prayer. And uh, Taylor taught the class. Um, I think Pete was supposed to teach it. And <laughs> he wanted Taylor to teach it. But uh, the, the focus of the class is that our perspective growing up in America on those three concepts is exactly opposite <laughs> what the Hebrew word really means. And just to, to Joshua's point very quickly, and not to do it justice, but to give you a, just a, a taste. Uh, on the one for tzedakah, um, in all three of these, we we have it backwards. For example, charity. Um, if I if I see a man uh, who who is poor, I I think to myself, I'm going to give him charity. I'm going to give him something he doesn't deserve. That's charity. Well, that's not tzedakah. It's just the opposite. Because God chose for him to be at that level, economy-wise, income-wise. That's God is sovereign. Mm-hmm. The guy isn't there by accident. And God is using you mm-hmm. to give him what he deserves. <laughs> the sages say that God predetermines how much money you're going to make on Rosh Hashanah. So he predetermined how much this guy, the poor man, is going to make. And he's going to use you. To give him that. So you're not giving to a guy who doesn't deserve it. You're giving him what he does deserve. And hopefully, you're giving him all that he deserves. So I thought it was cool. Yeah, that's good. A very good point. Um, and then one of the things that Midrash talks about is that David comes to God and goes, 
Will you not just make everyone equal? Just make everyone wealthy. Like, why, why, you're sovereign, you can do that. God's response in the Midrash is, if I did that, who would show loving kindness? Um, we start to think about life, start thinking of the universe in a bigger... I'll always be poor among you. I'll be poor among you. Start thinking of the universe in a bigger picture. Start thinking about it in terms of the physical that you have. Yeah, that's right. Thinking about the spiritual significance behind the actions you do. And you realize the poor people, it's not just... They're part of a bigger plan that's in this universe. And it's not just a consequence or whatever the case may be. Their bad luck or whatever. God is using them both in their lives and in yours. So, yes, sir. So, a couple thoughts. One is, uh, just if I may, I'm going to brag on one of my sons as well. <laughs> uh, Colby, since he's not here, I can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no effect. That's right. So, before, actually, just before he was my son in law, um, he. He was, you know, he was courting my daughter, and I was getting to know him. And first time I rode in his car, which but he had his car is pretty epic. In the back, he had like boxes of like you know granola bars and power bars and protein bars, and I'm like, what's all this for? And he's like, oh. I always carry these with me because anytime I see somebody, you know, at the stoplight and somebody's on the corner with their cardboard, you know, I always give them, I give them a box of granola bars or, or power bars. So, so I always have my car, you know, stopped. And I'm like, that's pretty cool, you know. So, um, so he was allowed to continue. That's right. <laughs> 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 he has received his award in this world and in the world to come. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, but so you know, we talked about that uh, we shouldn't pervert justice because somebody's poor, right? They shouldn't mm -hmm. have favor in the court simply because they're poor. Conversely nor should we accept bribes from the rich, right? right? And, and you know, we shouldn't allow them either with money or other favors or tickets to the Super Bowl or whatever it might be, we shouldn't allow them to cloud or pervert our judgment or, or, ju or, or pervert justice either, right? So, uh, so justice is justice and it has to be evenly mm -hmm. dispensed in accordance with, with, the, with the word of God. But, um, there was another thought that I had, but I've forgotten it. So, well, if it comes back, let us know. We got Craig, and then back to the Just uh, on the subject of charity, it's so cool to always be reminded that it's like the poor that is with you, like yeah. the one that's around you, like right here. Right. Because there is such an amazing benefit to seeing a direct link to where your money goes. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you online sometimes, and it's like, you just, you don't, how do you teach that to your kids? Like, how do you teach them, like, oh, this is going to this thing. Like, like here, watch, buttons, this, yeah. watch this trailer so that we can, like, <laughs> see these people in need. You know? And it just, it, it loses its, its significance because we are supposed to take care of the ones that are around us, mm. you know? And I, I just, I love that idea of communities taking care of communities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And at the same time, there's a huge reward for doing, for giving charity in which neither you nor the person receiving it knows where it came from. So the anonymity, anonymity is, is also really cool. So there's there's like on both sides. Yeah. Uh, to your point, you should definitely be taking care of people around you, in front of you. But you should also um, there's nothing wrong with you know, sharing it out, you know, beyond that circle. 
especially if they happen to be in Israel. That's always a great place to get charity. I remember my other thought. My other oh. thought was um, a lot of Jewish communities actually have a fund. There's a fund that is established by the community that is there to loan to members of the community who may need assistance from time to time. So, um, you know, so a lot of Jewish communities, you know, take take this spot and they put it into practice through, you know, setting up a, a fund of, of sorts. Very cool. Uh, I got you and then Johnny in the back. Uh, I was going to change the topic. Okay, Johnny, same topic? Yeah. Okay. I was just going to finish with that. Um, Roman actually uh, codified uh, the eight levels of chari charitable giving and double anonymity is actually the next to highest in that, you know, Someone knows that they're giving and they're tr and they're you know trusting someone like Greg mentioned you know trusting someone in the, in the community to make sure that it finds its way into the right hands, but then also the person who's receiving it, they're benefiting by not having to suffer embarrassment mm -hmm. uh, as a result of this. So the this, um, the the only higher form of this is to actually basically give a man a means to provide for himself, like help him either find a job or give him a job mm -hmm. so that he can work to provide for himself. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, the whole teach a man to fish type thing. Right, cool. Um, so but that's that's like top shelf. Yeah, it's important. You gotta take care of your neighbor. Um, I think we have a comment Oh, I just here. been wanting to say, so Robin Hood is actually a criminal. Right, he actually yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Absolutely. <laughs> 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 Yeah, noble. But that's the, the example. Like, they, like right. stealing is never right. Stealing is never right. The sheriff was also a criminal. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> both sides are bad, but all the rich people in the story were criminals. <laughs> but at the same time, there is the hope. it's important to work through <laughs> through the realms of justice. Um, I'm gonna get your point in just a second, just to stay on this core point real quick. One of the things to think about, we talk about charity is to remember that when you give charity, you are again doing an act of Hashem. You are acting like God. One of the things in the Midrash on this portion that is awesome. Wow, so cool. They talk about if you take your fellow's garment as security until sunset, shall you return it to him? For it is alone is his clothing, it is his garment for his skin, and what should he lie down? So it will be that if he cries out to me, I shall listen for I am compassionate. And so you read this portion, and the sages say that if you read through the Hebrew, basically the impl implication is that not just when you take a garment at night, like in this case, it's like his, his you know, night robe or whatever else, so you should return to him when he needs it. Okay, this is a guy who owes you money, and you're thinking to yourself, I have to give it to him when he needs it? What kind of a loan is that? But it's like, no, you cannot put him in extreme discomfort just for the sake of this loan. It doesn't matter. you got to do justice. Part of justice is mercy, and you, gotta, you should give it back so that he can use it at night. They flip it on its head, and they say, well, in addition, that means if you were to take something he uses during the daytime, you should also return it to him during the day. And they say the Holy One, blessed is he, does the same thing. It says, he took the temples as a pledge because of our sins. Because the people of Israel, his people, erred. And they lost the right to retain the temples in their place. And just as this portion says, they cry out to Hashem. They respond and they say, we, we need this back. When will you return this to us? And so one of the, I can't remember if it's Eliyahu, somebody like that in the, in the Midrash, goes to God and says, wait. How is this fair? You're supposed to return the pledge when they ask for it. And you sh God, Hashem's response is to say that when the sunrise of Mashiach occurs, 
I will return it. As it says in the book of Zechariah, that with the, the sun of righteousness will arise with healing in its wings. So the idea being that Hashem literally fulfills this commandment. And when we need it, he returns it to us. Amen. Which is just so incredibly awesome. So I want to encourage you guys this week. Well, you can take, don't just do it begrudgingly. Get excited about giving money away. Get excited about doing a mitzvah about keeping some of these mishpatim because you are literally acting out in this world the very actions of Hashem. And it's like, it's a huge ordeal. You are connecting with the Holy One in a way that is unique. The mitzvot, it's about the idea of a connection. You're making a connection with God himself. Amen. Yes, sir. Well, just to bring it full circle, um, the next I like verse, uh, 22, 28, um, you know, we, we're... Your focus, I think, here is that we should be living these. These should be part and parcel in the way we act as we act like Hashem. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, 22-28 is exactly why when the Apostle Paul was in front of the Sanhedrin, he mouthed off at the guy that was presumably in charge, and they hit him across the mouth, backhand, and it's like, wow, wait a minute, do you not realize? He's the high priest. And he apologized because of this very verse. He lived out the Torah. Absolutely. It's important to live it out. Um, and then kind of getting towards the end here. We need to, we're, we're past time here. Um, Are you switching subjects yet? Oh, yes. Go ahead. Uh, well, on the, uh, I wanted to switch subjects to the actually the end. Good. That's where I was going. And address one of the really, I mean, it's probably got to be the most profound couple of paragraphs in the history of humankind. In uh, chapter 23, verse 9, it says, Moses and Aaron, uh, Nadav and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. <laughs> right. And, Whoa! And, and in our prayers, we add an extra word that's not found in, uh, in the actual Hebrew. In English, it says, and we will see with a perceptive view and upon his return his abode. And the word perceptive view is not, the perceptive is not there. Right. It's it's ray, it's rod. It just we'll means see. to see. And it means, to see is to have form. Right. So, this is this is, uh, this is is where Peshat is supreme. <laughs> right. And where uh, uh, the plain meaning of the, the text. The, the fine uh, uh, cataloger Rambam was wrong. Yes. In his third, in his third statement, he's wrong. Anyway. Because the Torah says very clearly, they saw him, period. Right. See, I think when you look at this, you really realize that Shaul, like Ramban, but slightly more nuanced than Ramban, mm-hmm. says that Ramban says that Hashem is a spirit. And that he's invisible. He's invisible. And the only invisible God. And of course, Yeshua even goes forward and has to say that none has seen him, which then we go, like this passage, what's that mean? But of course, we realize if you, if you start to you know, one really cool element within Kabbalah is the idea that God displays himself in whatever way he chooses to display himself. And we are too small to understand God in his entirety because he is infinite. And so therefore, he he displays himself in a way that we can comprehend. And this is an example of that. Now, in this case, though, going to my dad's point, this is there actually is an image. So when we get to like the whole Yeshua thing and whatever else, how can he be God and also that, this is an excellent validation to that, the argument that Yeshua is indeed God displayed to us in human form that blows the mind and it should blow your mind you should be completely confused the point is 
that it's not, doesn't mean that it's not true, because I think we have eminent, ev evident examples of it in the, as my dad pointed out, in the plain reading of the text. Yes, sir. Well, I, actually, that was where I was going, is we, 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 we don't have to understand how they saw it. Yeah. Right. Because Paul is correct. The only place in any of the scriptures, old and new, that it says God is invisible is actually found in the apostolic scriptures. Paul says it. And yet Rambam makes the point, you can't see him. He's without form, contradicting exactly what God says of himself in Numbers chapter 12 when he speaks to Moses. He saw my form. He uses the same Hebrew word that Rambam uses when he says he has no form or corporal being. Hmm. So the point here is that in our efforts to explain, but whether it be on, on the Christianity side or on the Judaism side, Free to explain alone. away the inexplicable, right. we err. We, we need to take the supreme Peshat, the face value, and say, they saw God because that's what it says. Do I understand it? No. Am I supposed to understand it? Probably not. We don't have to explain it as they saw Yeshua or anything like that. They saw God. There doesn't need any more explanation. Interestingly enough, the Midrash Rabbah from Mishpatim stops at chapter 20. <laughs> <laughs> That's not by accident. It is confusing. It's kind of supposed to be. I think you have a comment, and then I've got one more thing to say, and then we'll see we've got to wrap up. Part, you know, ragging at Rambam. No, I wasn't writing out wrong. You do love wrong. Of course not. But something, no. else, something else he does say that um, is kind of interesting around this, he talks about several levels of angels. Oh, yeah. And how, you know, each, each consecutive level going up understands God more. Hmm. But the, even the topmost level, and I forget which one it is, uh, it's either the Hayot or above them, but even they don't understand God in his entirety. They right. only understand a fraction of, of right. who he is and, and what is what he what he is like. Absolutely. So And they see him. And, and they and they see him. They right. See him. It's interesting in the um one of the things in the Midrash talking about talking about Yeshua and also reinteracting with Hashem himself physically. Um, they comment on this passage, I think it's this passage, or maybe a previous one, talking about Moshe ascending the mountain. And they say that he ascended and he descended. And they flip over and they quote from Psalms where it says that he ascended and he descended and he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Well, the captivity captive in this case is, um, according to Midrash, Hashem says, well, what, what, what more valuable thing do I have than the Torah? So what is he, when a, when a man goes into someone's house and wants to steal something quietly, he tries to look for something that maybe won't be missed. But when someone is brazen, you know, that's when you take away the most valuable thing. So he led captivity captive. It's like, he did something really brazen. Big deal. And then he gave gifts to men. He brought the Torah down and gave it to men. Think about Yeshua, uh, Paul, in his comments about Yeshua, he says the exact same thing. He says, Yeshua ascended into heaven. He descended uh, down into, um, into uh, uh, Sheol, yeah, the death. And he has taken captivity captive, which Shaul interprets as being us, in a sense, taking us and he gave gifts to men. And in, in, the, in, the, in the passage, I think a lot of times it's easy to think of gifts to men as, as relating. I think even in that one, he talks about like spiritual gifts. It's very easy for us, I think, to kind of like key in and just sound like they're like super, superpowers, you know, like, oh, cool. You know, you have the ability to speak tongues and you have the ability to be generous. And it's like generosity woman, you know, whatever. And it's like, but actually the idea, if you look at the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the traditions, according to Judaism, they say that in the first temple, you could go, you, you could go. To a, to a Levite, to a, a, a priest, and they would tell you your place in the Torah. What that means is an element, a mitzvah, that you were particularly good at, which is something that you just do naturally because it's easy for you. 
And that is something that you should really focus on and invest in because that's something that God has put specifically in your heart to do well. And I really think that that is the idea that Shaul is trying to get at in spiritual gifts because with the exception of maybe a couple of them, they're all like pretty obvious mitzvot. And the ones that are not so obvious, they are also mitzvot, but they're like on a higher level or different plane or whatever. So um, there's like a, a, it's to encourage you. And in fact, oh man, I'm trying to remember, I think it was, it may have been Nachman, but Peter sent around some cool drosh um, teaching uh, recently to some of the men here um, who were into the, some of that kind of stuff. And he mentioned that that issue of like finding like the thing that you're good at. Because you want to know like what are you good at and then like invest in that. Make that important. And so um, anyway, just going back to this point, when, when so when Moshe came down from the mountain, he gave gifts to men. He gave us the Torah. What a great gift. And really, at the end of the day, Yeshua gave us the same gift. He gave us the Torah. He gave us the capacity to understand it better, to keep it better, and he taught us more about it. So I hope that as, you know, as we, again, as we're going through this stuff, don't let this just be a lesson. Don't let this be like flow through your head. That was cool. You know, I might go you know, blog about it after Shabbat. I want you to take this change your life. I want it to impact the way that you live because that's the point of it. That's what we're doing here. Yes, sir. The ascending and descending always reminds me of a very peculiar couple of verses um, Proverbs 30. Surely I'm a bore of a man and do not have human understanding. I have not learned wisdom nor known sacred knowledge. Who ascended to heaven and descended? Who else gathered the wind in his palm? Who else tied the waters in a cloak? Who established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. It's always been kind of an interesting you know, statement, and of course, there's some commentary that the one who ascended and descended is Moshe. Right. Of course. Oh. But what's his, what's his and also, name? exactly. What's his son's name? Gershon. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's cool because I think that that's one thing. Also, as you, as you study the Torah, I hope you get encouraged to keep finding all the different layers, the different levels, because sometimes they repeat. You know, this is talking about Moshe, and it's also talking about Yeshua. So, um, I hope you're encouraged. So, I think we're going to wrap up here. Thank you again for your patience. You pray for us. Good Father, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for Joshua and his good leadership and helping us with the discussions. Father, we pray that you would bless those around us through us. Help us to be generous people, worthy of carrying your name. Father, we're grateful for the Mishpatim, these words of life. Help us to live by them. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joshua.